Welcome to the Stuck in Rut Podcast. Got him. Dropped him. Nice shot, buddy. Hey guys, welcome back to another Stuck in the Rut podcast. Sorry, we've been MIA. We live a crazy life with six kids and we've been trapping and flying and been busy this winter. But today we sit down with a buddy of mine, Jake Jefferson. He's a master guide in Alaska. He's got over 200 brown bear, grizzly bear kills under his belt. That's kind of his specialty. We dive into bear hunting, shot placement, caliber choice, how to hunt big bears, what to look for, and how to target those big ones specifically and we talk about super cubs he's a new pilot and just a a great solid guy and we'll link all the stuff into the show notes but yeah thanks for listening and i hope you enjoy this one um yeah thanks for uh thanks for sitting down with us man never uh oh had a chance to actually chat with you on the phone but i feel like we'd be good buddies if you ever get down this yeah i think we'd be all right but i wouldn't let you fly my plane but you'd probably have to let me fly yours though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just uh, I just redid my insurance today, and I I talked about putting a buddy on my insurance because I won't let anyone fly it that's not insured, and the uh, only reason I have other people fly it is because I don't want to babysit it, and fall peninsula brown bear hunt is not a time to be babysitting a super cub. Yeah, no. So it's really cool to just see it... Uh, fly away well cool let's get started um so we're not like wasting time but yeah like i said super informal we don't have a script or i didn't write anything down just talk about hunting your business kind of how you got started cubs the new pilot perspective and um all the almost crashes you already had because i know there's probably a few oh we're supposed to talk about those <laughs> i have those all the time it's just all all <laughs> near all near-death experiences all the time every day you're in Wasilla, right? Is that where you live? Yeah, I'm outside of Wasilla in Big Lake. So, uh, I don't know, it was like 18 miles to Wasilla. Okay, great. Um, we'll kind of give everyone on the podcast just kind of a, a rundown of who you are and um, master guide and stuff, how you got started in the hunting industry up here, and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, well, my name is Jake. Um, the most common dog name on the planet. I don't know how I ended up with it, but I got it. So, you know, I get treats and stuff and I do good things. And I, uh, my family moved to Alaska from Michigan. Oh man, back in, I think 80. So I've been up here most of my life, um, hunting and fishing and doing things that everybody does up here. And, uh, I got into the guide industry kind of on accident. Um, I was going to be a rock star, like every teenage boy was going to do, but I was actually trying to do that. Uh, I got homesick and went to a sports show, saw pictures of Alaska, and heard some guy say he'd pay somebody 150 bucks a day to walk around and carry meat. And I thought, man, I struck it rich. I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, so I got my guide license and started carrying meat around and guiding clients, and it was just uh, you know, I mean, you find your niche and it's just like, man, this just works. This is natural. This is enjoyable. It's painful, but it's rewarding. And so I just kept at it and knocked my licenses out, got my registered license, um, when I was 21. And, uh, then I did got my master guide license as soon as I could, which is 15 years later. 
and uh, took two years off running heavy equipment on the slope to try and get unburnt out because I was doing about 17 hunts a year um, running my own business. So I was going um, pretty nonstop, 200 days a year in a sleeping bag without the family and stuff around, kind of tries a guy for a while. Um, so I took a couple years off and then came back to guidance. I've been running my own business for 15 years, guiding for 22 years, and that's pretty much just my lifestyle. It's what I've done and what I enjoy doing, so I still do it. Great. That's a killer lifestyle. Can you talk a little bit more about the master guide side? Why is that an advantage and what's involved in getting getting that? Because there's not many master guides in Alaska, is there? Uh, well, the master guide numbers drop because they're so old, they just die off randomly. And now, of course, COVID has killed half the world, so I don't even know if there's any left. Oh, yeah. But I know I'm still here because I take my <laughs> vitamin D. But there's, you, you have to have 15 consecutive years of guiding to qualify for a master guide license. A master guide license doesn't give you any extra advantages or privileges over a registered guide license other than saying I'm a master guide. And what that tells potential clients is that you have at least 15 years of guiding experience. A registered guide can get his license three years into it and have done, you know, one or two hunts a year. They've changed some of that requirements now, but um, you know, you could be still, like say I got mine when I was 21 years old. So, I mean, I could have been booking hunts at 21 years old with not as much experience as the guy that's a master guide and has been doing it for 15 years. Um, so the advantage of a master guide license is basically just tells potential clients that you're experienced is kind of the gist of the whole thing. Okay. Gotcha. Um, is it hard to become a registered guide? We get asked a lot of questions about guiding industry and why we don't guide and i just tell people straight up that i i like pulling the trigger and i knew if i was to be guiding you know i would do a lot less of that and um you still hunt quite a bit with family and kids but how does a guy become a registered guide to kind of get started i mean you started just packing meat right but you wanted more than that well i started as a packer they hired me as a packer but because i had the minimum qualifications to acquire my assistant guide license, I started packing with an assistant guide license. So I could guide clients as long as the contracting guide was in the field. Um, so I went straight into guiding. Like my first week there, I thought I was going to be packing and I had a grizzly bear client. Um, I'd only seen three grizzlies in my life on the first day of our hunt. So it was kind of a, uh, this is awkward, you know, trying to tell somebody about <laughs> last bears when you know nothing. I'm like, man, this is my first mustache. I'm hoping it comes in, like working on facial hair. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, you're, you're a pup is what you are. Um, and so that, that was kind of an awkward point there. But um, when I got registered, some of the older guys call it the Cracker Jack Guides um, because they just handed out guide licenses like they're in a box of Cracker Jacks. It wasn't as stringent and strict as it is now. Um, they have requirements now. You have to have guided so many successful hunters for each species. Um, you have to have a video of yourself field dressing an animal. Um, you have an oral exam where you score different species in front of a panel. Um, there's uh, other questions that the panel will ask at the same time. And the panel is facilitated by other guides who are registered or master guides already. Um, so you're kind of being critiqued by the people that are already in the industry, um, and they're the ones that get to grade you. 
on acquiring the registered guide license. But to get registered, you're going to have to have a minimum of at least three years invested into the guiding industry already. Um, so it's not it's not something where you make a short-term plan. Ah, I'm going to pick up my registered guide license this week and knock out a couple hunts. It'll be cool. Um, it, you have to really dive into it and get established with an outfitter who will do your letters of recommendation and kind of nurture you and, and nurse you along the way from the pup status and your first mustache um, <laughs> to being able to, you know, hold your own and be a, a, a personality that can handle adverse personalities because not every client is going to get along with you. So there's more to it than just licensing and, you know, being a guide. Um, you mentioned, you know, you don't get to hunt. You like to make the big boom noise. So guiding, yeah, you lose all that. Um, you don't get to hunt. Hunting is not guiding. Uh, it, it, you, you kind of get burnt on it a little bit when you're guiding because of the, the, the change in the aspect. Yep. That was kind of my, my fear. I did a lot of sport fish guiding and it kind of turned into high class babysitting, you know, where you're just holding up the back of a guy's chest waiter sometimes. And his, his wife listens really good about how to cast nine feet with a nine foot fly rod. But, uh, the old rich guy didn't seem to listen that well. And it kind of burnt, it kind of burnt me out on fishing a bit. So I was honestly just kind of scared about that with the hunting industry. And, um, I put serious thought into it and stuff, but I'm happy where we're at and like taking kids and helping out family and stuff. So it worked out. So what are all the species that you guide then, Jeff? Jake. Jake. What's your name? Jake. (laughs) Jake, Jeff. Close. (laughs) I get get Jake Jefferson, which is actually on my... That's where the Jeff came from. And then I get get Jeff Jacobson, Jake Jacobson, (laughs) Jeff Jefferson, Jake Jacobson. You just, whatever. Dude dude is fine. Ugly is fine. Whatever, you know. So, no, I guide for um, bears is like, that's my thing. Uh, grizzly bears, brown bears, those are by far my favorites. Um, I used to do mountain goat, but it was drawing, and the people around the area figured out that it was good, so there's more residents applying for them. Um, so I dropped that because the draw odds are too low. Okay. Um, I, do moose, I do moose, black bear. I used to do sheep, and I will again someday, but the area that I'm at, the winter just pounded them last year so i canceled my sheep clients for the next half dozen years um just to see you know kind of let the sheep bounce back without me being annoying to them um so mostly bear and moose are are kind of my thing because bears give you a longer season more duration more opportunity and it's different every season you know moose is all all fall you got two weeks in the fall it's the same every year the weather is the same the bugs are the same the colors are the same moose are the same um, but in the bears, you know, you can hunt them in the spring when they're coming out of the dens. You can hunt them in the late spring when the snow is gone. You can hunt them in the early fall, the late fall. So you get like a different window for each of them, which I think is what makes a lot more unique than everything else. Yeah, that's cool. I had one quick question before Adam asks you one because he's about to. But so I'm curious, you know, when people think of you and your guiding outfit, what do they think of? Like, what is your specialty? Are you really good at all the species or is there one that just kind of really stands out that you really love to do and people are always going to you for because you're the the master 
I think like when I get clients that call me that have, have heard of me from somebody else, you know, the referral, the chain of whatever, um, the one thing that I hear more than anything else that people say about me is Jake is honest. Yeah. Um, that's why I'll have people that'll call and book and they'll be like, I heard about you from so-and-so. I don't even know what I want to hunt. And I'm like, well, <laughs> and I'll spit it out. So, okay. That's awesome. That, 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 that would be what I would say as far as what I, what I would consider myself specializing in. Like say, I enjoy bears more than anything. Oh, yeah. I think I'm not, I'm notching up on close to 200 and something bears now, I think in the last, 20 years since I started guiding. So that's kind of my thing, but I will never say I'm good at something because every, you got, you guys have hunted enough, you know, like, man, this place is hot. We're going to walk in there last year. There was, they were everywhere and you go in there and there's nothing. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? Yeah. Um, you have so little to do with the control of the animals that when people say like, well, man, I'm really good at this. I'm like, eh, you're really good if the animal's there. Yep. You know, I'm a really <laughs> yeah. great fisherman. You know, when the, when the pinks are in, man, I'm a great fisherman. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, when there's two kings in the river, I'm kind of mediocre. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of my perspective on myself is, you know, I work with what I'm given and, um, you know, I'll be honest with people about it because I don't want people to be disappointed when they get out there and have unrealistic expectations. Yeah. Yeah. As far as an outfitter goes, it's probably the best trait you can have just being straightforward and upfront with people. And that says a lot about character. You know, you're, you're canceling, you said what, six years of sheep hunting because the whole state got hit pretty hard, but your area in particular, you know, and if it's just not there enough to sustain the resource or consistently, you know, have good odds, you're telling your guys, Hey, it's not worth it. And I can't take your money. You know, that's uh that says something. Are you still pretty booked though with um like covid restrictions and stuff for this year? Yeah, um right now I'm I'm pretty solid for the next 2 years uh booked out. Um a lot of the international stuff I think right now is getting shut down. So I'm kind of anticipating I'm going to hear more from people cuz I think they I know South Africa has travel restrictions and stuff now. Um so I think we'll probably start seeing more interstate stuff from the lower 48 coming up that can't go overseas like they normally do. But yeah, right now we're looking good as long as they don't change anything on us again. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. Cause you know, I get a lot of people that are asking me, you know, I want to go on this hunt or that hunt and do you know any guides? And so I'm always trying to refer to people that I know, depending on the hunt that they want to go on. So I was curious. That's good to know that your sheep is kind of on the back burner for now, but um, I often hear moose. I don't know if there are any caribou guides or if you guide caribou, but that's often one. We get asked I, all the time yeah. for caribou hunts. Do you do any caribou hunts, Jake? No, I don't do caribou hunts. I do have non-resident tags where I'm at, um, but mostly the non-residents that end up with them are non-resident family members of people already in the states or in the state that are putting people in. Um, so no, I don't do caribou. I, yeah, mostly caribou. I mean, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we had caribou all over the place. And yeah. now, you know, the Mulchatna herd and the Alaska Peninsula herd and all those have really kind of tanked. So mostly it's just Brooks Range guides now that are doing anything with caribou. 
Yeah, it's it's sad. We've we've been trapping in the, you know, where the Mulchatna herd was two hundred thousand, and we haven't seen a caribou track. It's pathetic, and it's it's sad. Their numbers are pretty low, so they've kind of moved. Yeah, they've kind of moved around the winter, but there's there's very very few caribou to be had down this way. Yeah, it's rough overall. Um, yeah, I knew bears was kind of your specialty. Um, do you just like the hunt more so? Or, I mean, how does a guy get up to two hundred? bears under his belt that's a pile well i found the key is to staying awake and yeah. <laughs> i figured that i figured that out my first spring hunt you know when i was glassing for 16 hours a day and you physically cannot stay awake um but it it really comes down to um the every bear is different and all the other species the deer the caribou the moose the sheep they're all pretty much the same. I mean, they're prey animals. They operate on a very similar pattern with, you know, their eat, sleep, poop cycle, and everything is kind of generic with them. Um, you get into bears and you start watching bears, and you'll see one that almost has a personality. Uh, bears will fish differently. They will eat berries differently. Bears will clam differently. Um, they'll they'll court have courtship with other sows differently. Um, they'll interact with each other. Like everything about them is almost individualistic. Um, so when you get in on one and you're stalking one, you'll you'll figure out that one bear has a quirk that he does um, that's different than what other bears would do. And so every situation has an opportunity to learn something and to adapt, but the unknown is what gives it its appeal. Um Every now and then I'll get a client. He's like, oh, man, this is like my 25th bear hunt. I just can't get enough of this. Yeah. And it's like, man, I totally get it. I totally understand. It's just, it just never wears out. Um, but most guys that hunt moose are like, all right, I got my moose done. I don't really want to do that again. <laughs> um, See, I don't get that, it, though. You know? <laughs> yeah. On any, I don't know. I I think we're kind of cut from the same cloth. I don't, I get guys like, oh, I, I got a moose like two years ago. I'm probably not going to go this year. I'm like, what do you mean you're not going to go moose hunting this year? And then we got here and we're like the famous Alaska Peninsula. We bought an airplane, spring of 2018, going to go shoot a Peninsula brown bear. And a lot of guys say, oh, you're going to get, I mean, I shot a bear that was, it dried 28 and an eighth. And it's the first bear I ever shot. And I was like, well, that's going to be a hard one to top. So now I got to do something cool like my wife and go take the bow. But guys are like, oh, yeah, you're going to get one bear and then you're not going to want another one. And I don't, I don't get that. I don't have that at all. There's such an interesting huge animal and they're older too you know those big bears push mine was 16 but push up to 20 years or something when you're looking at the age class of an animal that's double of a large ram that you're chasing you know so that's a really wary adversary that you're chasing and i just don't get how people only want to do it once yeah i'll never understand that either it's like say because they're so different that it uh, it just doesn't get old, whereas everything else it just kind of wears out after a while, and you're like, well, it's just you know, it's just grocery shopping routine. Let's just whack that thing and just get him out of here and get home, so we don't have to carry meat in the, in the no seams again. Kind of <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, have you taken many clients that bring a bow for bear hunting? So, archery hunters are. Uh, they're special people. Um, <laughs> you could be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, be I honest, am. I'm asking. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you have like the hierarchy of people in the hunting industry that choose different kinds of weapons. 
And, you know, you have your stick and string guys or your stick and wheel guys that were, they were the coolest of the cool for a long time. Like, I, well, I do it with a bow. I do it with traditional. I do it with this, whatever. And then they came out with a 6.5 Creedmoor, and now they're the coolest of the cool. <laughs> so now archery is really not that neat anymore because it's close. Everybody wants to be 600 yards and over. That's like the new trend. But when the archery guys were kind of more prevalent, I would see more of them. I don't see very many of them anymore. Okay. Um, but the ones that did come, you know, some of them would be hardcore. They're like, all right, I'm going to come. I'm not bringing a rifle. We're going to do this with a bow. This is my limit. This is what we're going to do. Okay. I respect that. Um, I've never had a client with a bow kill an animal. I have had clients with bows shoot quite a few animals, but I've never had a client with a bow kill an animal. Um, that includes deer, grizzly bears, brown bears, and mountain goats. Wow. Um, the, the you probably hate archery hunters. <laughs> You're probably well, like, this is ridiculous. Well, I don't know. Like They're probably well, like me. It's like, Jake, give me the gun. What are you supposed to say? No, I don't want you to be successful. And I want you to give me a bad review. You know, you're like, here's my rifle, shoot the thing. Well, you know, usually by the time they're stuck an arrow in it, you know, every bow hunter sticks an arrow in it, and they're just like, wait, let them go, let them, let them go. Let, just wait, just wait, just wait, you know, because they don't want a bullet in it because then it doesn't make Pope and Young anymore. Yep. And you're sitting there going, I don't think it was a good shot. And they're like, no, no, I stuck them good, I stuck them good. And you're like, I don't think that was a good <laughs> shot. And you go back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> and then, you know, on the skyline, three miles away on the skyline, there goes your bear. And it's like, and the guy's like, oh, maybe I, maybe I didn't stick them very good. Uh, but a lot of outfitters won't take archery hunters at all. They'll just straight up tell them, no, I won't do it for that very same reason. Yeah. Um, but again, being honest with people, I say, hey, look, this is what's happened in the past. Um, at You know, when you get a bear at 10 or 15 yards, or I had a guy wound and lose one at four yards one day. What? I, you know, it's. Your your brain doesn't quite function normally because they're not in that situation enough to practice. Like, here's a grizzly bear at four yards. Just <laughs> yeah. be calm. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah. no, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's like this is a lifetime dream, you know, happening in their lap, and the adrenaline just shoots through the roof. And, um, you know, one guy shot his brown bear on the peninsula down out of Sandy River with his bow. Uh, at 19 yards and he hit him super high and the bear took off and I got a bullet in it. We weren't able to recover that one just because of the bullet. But I asked him where he was aiming and he said, I don't remember. All I know is all my pins were on the bear. I was like, Oh goodness. Well, you know, all the fundamentals just went out the window. Yeah. So what do you do there? I mean, I, I've talked to people before and like, I heard a story one time from a guy who was an assistant guy and he said, we had a, like a world record bear, and all he wanted to do is have the client pull the trigger so he could kill the bear, which I thought was pretty poor, you know, because these guys pay a lot of money to come up here, and he just wanted to shoot it, but he knew the guy was in panic mode. He was just ghost white, and he couldn't even move, and he's like, shoot the bear. He's like, huh? And he's like, shoot the bear, and it stood up at like eight yards or whatever looking at him. But when do you – that's got to be a hard call for you to make, archery or rifle. If the guy makes a poor shot, your job and your train, and they expect you from the state of Alaska to – to finish the animal off so you're not in a dangerous situation, right? Yeah, I mean, you're legally obligated. You know, if the animal's running away and wounded, you're legally obligated to assist. Um, or if lives are being threatened. Um, 
you know, the first handful of times, like when you're in on a bear, a lot of bears run when they're hit. They don't just drop. Everybody buys these guns that they think are what they call bear, quote-unquote, stoppers. Um, and that doesn't exist. That's not even a real thing. It's just a phrase somebody gave to sell stuff. And so when you hit a bear and it runs, um, as a young guide, if you haven't been around that kind of stuff, you immediately freak out and think it's, it's running away, it's leaving. Yeah. Um, so you start pumping lead in it, and you realize the guy's shot was fine, and another five yards, the bear probably would have died. Um, so it takes a handful of times or more before you get comfortable enough to say, okay, let the guy do his thing. And then I'm going to pull the trigger when he's half a step from the brush. And then, then I'll participate and let the client have as much time as he needs. Uh, It takes, it takes, you know, you have to be in that moment to learn how to deal with the moment. And, you know, I've had some bears where, you know, the guys have just plowed them right through the kneecaps on the hind legs at 40 yards. And you're just like, that was the world's most horrible shot. And you're trying not to say something to them because you want to make fun of their shooting, you know, because you're having fun with them. But <laughs> it's, you're trying to tell them, you know, hit them again, hit them again, hit them again, and, and tell them where to hit them again. Yeah. And kind of get them to refocus because some guys will shoot and then look up from the scope to see what's happening. Um, you know, we, we've got on bears with guys before and, you know, you talk about the guy turning white as a sheep and I've actually reached over and smacked people in the side of the head, um, <laughs> just to try and to get them back to reality. Um, one guy, we were on a black bear of all things and he was laying down, getting ready to shoot at like 25 yards and he wouldn't look at me. And I kept saying his name, I said, man, look at me. And he wouldn't turn and look at me. And he was so focused on the bear, he couldn't hear me. He couldn't anything, no reaction. And I started hitting him on the foot and because he was laying down. And he turned around looking at me. I said, hey, man, happy birthday. Uh, and he was like, looked at me real, he's like, it's not my birthday. I'm like, I know, but now you're listening. Turn around and let's shoot this bear and pay attention. <laughs> and it kind of snapped him. It kind of broke that adrenaline train that he had. And he was able to refocus without being, you know, buck feverish. And I could communicate with them because that's that moment when you need the communication. Like this is the moment that you have no idea what you're doing and, and this is why I'm here. So I need you to listen to me. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes you gotta, you gotta get creative with people to try and make that moment function. So it doesn't turn into some sort of a disaster. Yeah, that, yeah. That'd be the hardest part of the job. I think you got some guy that's dreamed of this his whole life and he's a, a CEO from the East Coast, and you've been in this position and know how to gather your thoughts and compose yourself and what to do and probably what the animal is going to do based on their behavior. But this this guy just zones out, and you, it's your job to snap him back into reality so he can hopefully put it somewhere in the lungs. Yeah, one thing that I've started doing, well, I shouldn't say started, I mean, you know, 15 years ago I started, but when when I would be around other assistant guides and stuff and they'd be on a stock, they would kind of just, they're going a hundred mile an hour and man, I hope the client's there. That guy better keep up. He better be here. I'm going to get over there and get on that bear. And if you want some, he better be there. Um, and I always thought, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a dirty way to play this. Um, you're, you're functioning as a team and it doesn't matter if you're a guide and a client or, or two buddies hunting moose. I mean, you're still functioning as a team. And you're only as effective as the least effective person. Um, so I started really including the clients 
in the stock and the approach. Like, all right, we're going to, we're going to work up this drainage and see if the bear does this. This is why. And then we'd go. And then we're like, all right, we're going to adjust. You know, you can feel the wind shift coming up this draw. So we're going to hook down here and keep an eye on that bear. But this is why we're doing this. And doing that includes them in the whole process on the stock. So if it isn't successful, you know, I, I've seen guys turn around and go, oh, we lost them. And they're like, we lost what? Like, oh, we were stalking a bear. Oh, we were? They didn't, they didn't even tell them what they were doing. They just like thought we were out hiking. So oh, wow. when you pull them into it and then the stock gets blown, the guy's like, oh, man. And they know everything that happened. And now they have a whole story to tell. Even if they don't get a bear, they were on a bear. They were working a bear. They were trying for a bear. They were navigating and negotiating and playing the game. And so they're included in it. And then when you get to the point of taking the shot, they feel like they've been part of the experience and the communication is easier because they, you've been communicating rather than just going, okay, now we're going to talk about this and talk about what, like, right. There's a barrier over that hill. Yep. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And then they're, then they're just, then they start shaking immediately. Um, so including them in the process, cause I mean, they're paying for it. It's their trip, you know, make it their trip, not make it your trip. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Um, we get asked sometimes, um, and I know you're talking about bear stoppers, everything, but 6.5, that's put them dead in their tracks. One shot, but <laughs> can you <laughs> talk a little bit about, um, like minimum caliber, what you want to see a guy bring for a brown bear hunt. And then obviously they're bigger, probably harder to kill than grizzly bears, depending on the bear. But talk about shot placement. There's a lot of arguments of, are you going to shoulder pound them? Are you going to put it in the lungs? And our personal thought is you put a bullet through the lungs, they're going to die. And I don't know what it is about bears. And we haven't seen nearly as many as you have die, but they go to like this freak out crazy mode when they get shot with a rifle and they just have so much adrenaline built up that they can just go and you got to kill them. And I don't think putting in the shoulder personally for me is um, what I try and do. So what's your thoughts? Because you've done quite a few. Well, from what I've seen and other people may tell you different, depending on what their experiences are. Cause like we said earlier, every bear is different. Big bears die the easiest. The bigger they are, the easier they die. Um, most of the big bears that we've, that we've got, you know, 10, 10 and a halves or whatever, one, two, sometimes three shots. They walk in a circle, they look confused, they fall over dead. They don't seem to panic like smaller bears do. Grizzly bears, as opposed to brown bears, which referring to coastal bears, Kodiak or the Alaska Peninsula, um, the grizzly bears, they're, they're on crack. <laughs> so when you hit them with a bullet, I mean, they like a hundred miles an hour as fast or in the biggest circle or the tightest circle, or they'll, they'll somersault and roll. I mean, they just go crazy. And so I'm a big proponent of kill it first, stop it second. Yep. Um, depending on the angles. I mean, ideally my favorite is a quarter and away shot where you can punch lungs and take out an opposite shoulder. Um, typically if you can get a bear's opposite shoulder and he's running on a flat tire and three strong ones, he's going to he's going to run an arc. If if the ground's flat, he's going to run a loop. Um, if you haven't busted shoulders, then he can navigate whatever kind of terrain he wants instinctively and 
usually it's down into a draw. They're like they're a brush magnet. You yeah. know, wounded bears they they'll live just long enough to get inside the brush where you can't see them. Um, that's like seems to be all the gas they have is to get to cover. Um, so I tell guys we're going to kill it, then we're going to stop it. So you make sure your first shot. Let's take vitals, both lungs preferably. If we have to get the heart, we get the heart. But two-thirds of the way up, tight behind the front shoulder and a flat broadside bear, it seems to be more the most effective shot. Um, if we do have to shoulder shoot them, I prefer to be higher in the shoulder. Lower in the shoulder, you've got the bones pushing more towards the front. Higher in the shoulder, you've got the scapulas on both sides. But they do have what I refer to as the sweet spot right below the spine where you can run a bullet through there and hit absolutely nothing. Yeah. You're just um, in no man's land there, right? Yeah. There's a hole there. And I think I, I'm just speculating here, but I think when they breathe out and their lungs are a little bit deflated, that hole is even bigger. Um, so if you catch them right at the wrong time, you could run it through there and not hit the spine and it does no damage. So, gotcha. but so yeah, so my theory every time, depending on the angle, let's kill it. Then we'll work on stopping it. Because like you said, you know, if you take out lungs, that's a simple motor function. They need that to survive. They will be dead in their tracks somewhere. Yeah, is that a pretty uh, a pretty general rule of thumb for you? Two-thirds of the way up, tight behind the shoulder, if they're uh, perfectly broadside. Is that for brown bears and grizzly bears, what you tell your, your clients? Yeah, brown and grizzly are pretty much the same thing, the way they're constructed. Um, with a client, I tell them halfway up, tight behind the front shoulder, because that gives them the largest margin of error in every direction. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. And then what for caliber do you have your guys shoot minimum? Well, I've shot brown bears personally with two seventies, um, and they work just as good as a thirty out six does. I've never had an issue. Um, so I tell guys I prefer a thirty out six and up. Whatever they have at home that they're comfortable shooting, like, you know, we've heard all the old adages, you know, better something that you're comfortable with than something you can hardly shoot. Um, so any of the 300s, 30-06s, I think are ideal for bears. They work just fine. Bears are not thick skin. They, you know, you get penetration. It's more important, I think, your bullet construction than anything else over caliber. Yeah. Um, controlled expansion stuff, none of this burger and soft points and all that kind of stuff. Um, so... Yeah, a 30 out 6 and up is kind of the, the baseline for what I tell guys. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was kind of curious about the archery thing because I have this weird thought in my head that I just want to keep shooting them with my bow, but <laughs> I want I want a big boar with my bow, and I'm just like, oh, can I do it? Well, she can just I went trad. <laughs> she just gave up the compound to go trad bow. So I'm well, like, I still oh. have both. but It's like, oh, great, here we go. That's a lot more flying for me. <laughs> well, you know, a bigger boar is just a bigger target. So yep. really, why not? Yeah. Do you have much issue, though, kind of sneaking in close to them? And I've only hunted them in the fall, so have you, you know, gotten close to them in the spring? Archery? Uh, spring bears, man, it all depends. If we've been in pretty close on them when they have a sow. Yeah. Where you can stalk the sow and then wait for him to show up. That gives you a chance to set up 
kind of pick your spot if he's not like right right on her six you know sometimes she'll be 100 200 yards a mile ahead of him yeah and you'll see him following her step for step and then that gives you a chance to get into a position where uh, you can intercept them and get that close range shot when they're up in the snow which a lot of bears are in the spring yeah getting close is tough in the snow yeah um i mean they, they basically just have to walk up on you there's a few cases, depending on the terrain, where you can get close, but not normally. For close stuff, your fall is obviously when they have a food source that's diverted them. Um, that's that's going to be the easiest thing. I mean, you get a bear walking in the water. He's dumber than a box of bricks. He's got noise from his legs. He's got something for his eyes to watch. His nose is full of all the things that he loves, and he expects other things to be around. Um, you know, when they're fishing, they've been fishing around other bears for, you know, sometimes three or four months. So other activity, other noises in the grass aren't as alarming to them. Uh, so if you've got the wind in your favor and you make a little noise, that doesn't mean it's over. You know, it just, they might look around, but you're not necessarily just going to blow them out of there. So anytime you have a food source, bait or salmon stream, or even a good berry patch, some bears will really fall in love with that. It gives you a better opportunity for getting closer, I think. Yeah, when you're on the when you're on the fall bears um, on fish and stuff like that, do you obviously we know, and I'm sure you'll touch base on that. You don't want to move um, more than you absolutely have to, but at some point you have to move and um, get around. But do you get there and spend your first couple of days kind of just evaluating the creek or the fishery or what bears are kind of in the area? Um, or how do you play that to kind of make the most out of it? So when I'm going into somewhere for a fall hunt, you know, hypothetically, let's say I'm working for a different outfitter or I'm working for myself and I get dropped off. I don't leave the tent until I can legally hunt. Um, I was down in Kodiak working the bay that I take clients in, um, and a resident showed up there a couple days before me and the salmon stream is usually very active. And I had a bow hunter, coincidentally. Um, and I was like, man, we're going to get up in the morning. We're going to move out of this creek. It's going to be wham, bam, surprise. Uh, and there was no bears. And a couple days went by, and I went over and talked to that resident. And he came in three days before the season opened. And he said, man, the first day we saw like 10 bears. And the second day we saw like six bears. And the third day we saw two bears. And we haven't seen a bear since. And I'm sitting there going like, well, what did you do? He said, well, we just walked over to the creek. So every day, less and less bears were around just based off of human presence. Um, I did a hunt down on the Alaska Peninsula where we had a hill we could look out over the river valley with. And we were seeing 20 bears a day, nothing we wanted to shoot. Finally, we found one to shoot. We went across the valley and we shot it. And the next guy that sat in that camp later saw two bears and that was it because we walked across the middle of that valley and put our scent everywhere. Up until then, they had no idea we were there. So when I go into an area to hunt it, I will not leave camp until I can legally hunt. I don't scout. I don't walk around. I don't go beach combing. I don't do anything because if I'm there for a bear, then I have to do everything I can to enhance my opportunity and, Walking around and stinking things up does not do that. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, how much of a scent Nazi you are because <laughs> I took my daughter brown bear hunting on the peninsula last spring 
And I was so paranoid the entire time. I, I mean, I was like, we are not moving this to this spot. We are, you know, I was just such a scent Nazi. Um, and we, we saw quite a bit, but like you said, you'd still see kind of less and less every day. So what are some tips that you have as far as scenting the area and trying to avoid that as much as possible? Trying to avoid scent in the area? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, because I've even talked to some people that are like, oh, you're fine, you know, walk the beaches, the the tide will wash it out. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Will your scent still stick around even with the tide or um, after a couple of days? I don't think your scent on the ground really has that much to do with it. So, if, like, say, let's say you have a tent set up and you're walking a, a mile to a lookout and back, and, yep. and that's all you're doing. Yep your scent is still blitzing through the air everywhere. Yep. Um, I have, I have seen bears at two miles, walk over the mountain, look directly at me and turn around and run the other direction. Wow. And it's like, well, what do you do with that? But at some point you have to hunt. Yeah. So it's kind of like, do we, do we just not go out? I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So you just kind of have to just hang yourself out there and do the best you can with whatever wind you have. Yep. Um, I've wore, I wear rubber boots everywhere. A lot of people say rubber boots cover your scent. We walked a caribou trail on the tundra. So the no, no knee high brush is all short stuff. We walked a trail up to a lookout and had a grizzly come up over the ridge and he hit that trail where we walked in our rubber boots, and he locked up and then turned and slowly walked backwards and real slowly angled towards the brush. And when he was within 10 yards of the brush, he just, like, blitzed and dove into the brush. And just from the scent from our rubber boots walking down that trail was all it took to turn him around and get him out of there. So yeah. it's like, well, you're not going to hide scent from a brown bear just <laughs> yeah. not going to be able to do it so you just kind of do the best you can like we're going to go to the same spot every day so we're not making spider trails of our scent everywhere right and the wind's gonna the wind's gonna be the wind and every now and then you'll get a bear that really doesn't care they'll come straight up downwind they'll sit around your tent they'll walk down your trail some of them really don't care which is gives them that individuality where you just never know yeah so I just don't wander around. If I'm hunting bears, we get on a lookout and we let our binoculars do the walking. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, it's just the glassing, man. It's it's so tiring on my eyes <laughs> for 20 hours a day, as you know. Do you have any uh, tips for me as far as, like, eye fatigue? You know, do you have ways that you figured out how to not do that? Or are you just well-trained for it? Well, you know, I'll even still get eye fatigue. That's that's just a normal aspect. The one, there's a couple things that will help. People uh, kind of skimp on some things financially. Binoculars are one of the things you cannot do that with. Yep. You will get less eye fatigue with the higher end glass than you will with cheaper glass. Because in cheaper end glass, your eyes are trying to fix what's wrong with the image. Um, like looking through a screen on a window, you know, you're trying to make out what's out there and your eyes are trying to put it in your brain is trying to put it all together, even though you have disturbance in between the two of you. So higher in glass makes a big difference. The other thing that I do is 
the, almost all binoculars have the eye cups for the eyeglass wearers, you know, the pull-out eye cups. My eye cups are always all the way in. So I have nothing pushing on my face. The only place that my binoculars contact my face is right at the bottom of my eyebrows. So my binoculars aren't a physical presence on my face. Yeah. They're just something that I can look through. And that makes a big difference for me. I mean, having stuff jammed into your eye sockets puts <laughs> pressure on your veins and your yeah. nerves, and then it makes your eyes harder to work. And it just it just does that to me. The second or third, can't count, i got a village education, <laughs> is um, take naps. Um, Amen. It's, it, it's one of those things where, man, you glass and glass and glass, and you knock out six hours, and you're like, man, Take 10 minutes, take a power nap and get back to it. It's you're going to, you're going to lose 10 minutes on a power nap. If you don't take it, you're going to be ineffective for hours. So man, like I'll tell the client straight up. I, said, I mean, there's guys all over the world with pictures of Jake sleeping. But I'll tell <laughs> guys straight up. I'm like, it's all you. I'm checking out and I'll tell them to do the same thing. I said, man, I got it. Take a nap. You know, take a break. Just let your brain recoup, let your face recoup, um, and get revitalized a little bit. And that, that helps a lot for the eye fatigue factors. Yeah. I could not nap. I, I mean, I'd close my eyes and rest a little bit, but I couldn't sleep. I tried. I yeah. just went off no takes sleep. Takes practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I will never pass, I'll never pass up a good chance for a tundra nap, and Tana will testify to that. And, uh, I have no, yeah, amen. but you gotta, you gotta have someone watching and, um, yeah, um, to kind of bounce stuff off and yeah, it's gotta be hard for you because, you know, spring brown bear, we're talking, you're saying 16, sometimes 18 hours of daylight. It's hard to keep a guy motivated. And I tell people like, what's it like? And I'm like, it's kind of like flying a cub. It's thousands of hours of boredom and then interrupted by sheer moments of terror. And then you see that bear and you're like, Hey. Mike, wake up. We need to go. And he's like, what, what do you mean? And uh, you're grabbing him and stuffing the Barney's pack, and you're making a run for it because you finally saw the bear, and he's on a move. Um, is it hard for you to keep guys in the zone and motivated, especially when you get kind of towards the end and they're they're kind of dragging or guys quit early on you? Or how, do you how do you work that angle? Sometimes I'll bribe them with treats. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'll just <laughs> – I'll tell them stories. Uh, you know, stories seem to be the biggest thing is, you know, I'll, I'll like, you know, Hey, one time I was out here and like in the last 10 minutes of the last day, we were on our way back to the tent and this happened. Um, and kind of just instilling them that any second, any moment, it takes a bear one step to become visible one step to disappear. And you got to be ready for that one step. Cause that will change the whole game. And it can happen at any time. Um, so I tell them stories about other hunts and stuff that have happened or not happened. Um, and just making the relationship with your teammate out there, the guide and the client, making it an entertaining and enjoyable experience will keep you refreshed. Um, and when I book a hunt with a guy, them having realistic expectations delays disappointment um, yeah. if they think they're going to show up to alaska and oh my goodness there's bears everywhere and, you know we're going to whack this 
first day and you know, we're going to see 50 bears and then they show up and they don't see a bear for eight days. And I'm like, wait a sec, I thought you had bears here. I'm like, man, man, I thought we did too. I just Googled it and it said they were here and they're not. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you got to ingrain this, the reality. And when they show up with the realistic expectation, like, Hey, this might take a week and we might only see one and it might be rubbed and it might be ugly. They understand that ahead of time. So when they have that realistic expectation, they don't get down as quick. They don't get as disappointed as easy because that's not what they're expecting. Disappointment usually comes from the unrealistic expectation. Yep. This is what I thought. Similar to how your wife felt when after she married you, right? <laughs> exactly. She had expectations, and then she got to know you better. And like, what? You know? Who yeah. are you? Exactly. I had three hundred bucks yeah. in the bank, and she, I had three hundred bucks, and she's like, "I thought you were rich because you're not good looking." I'm like, "Well, jokes on you. You signed up for this, and here we are." Yeah, well, three hundred bucks is three hundred bucks is rich. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's two days of being a packer. That's pretty good money. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's right. Raise it. Well, cool. Um, well, enough about bears. I, I really like bear hunting. We could talk about that for a long time, but I want to kind of get your uh, perspective. You're um, a new, rich super cub owner, aren't you? Because now you own a cub, you must be rich. Isn't that the persona? Or did you win the lottery? Yes, I have, I have 300 bucks. That's rich, so we're good. <laughs> You're broke now that you own a cub. Um, kind of talk to us about how that uh, transpired. I know you told me your dad was a pilot and stuff, but... Uh, obviously took you long enough and what kind of pushed you over the edge to say, I want to do this and I want to get up front. So ever since I was little and when I started guiding, even every time we'd fly out in a cub, you know, the pirate, the pilot firewalls it and that thing gets moving. And the next thing you know, you're in the air. And every time those tires would clear the ground, I would just look down and say, someday I've got to do this from the front seat just once. And that was my, that was my plan was to find an instructor someday that would just let me take off and land. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to fly. I didn't want to own a plane. I, I just wanted to do it one time. And I, as I got further along into the guiding, you know, I was married, had six kids and I was kind of wanting to come home at night a little bit more often than I was. And so I kind of started thinking like, well, the second next best thing to what I'm doing is just flying for my own business. I could hire a guide. I could do my own flying. I could come home at night. I could still be involved in the guiding industry and use my license. It all made sense. And so I talked to my wife and we're like, Oh, that sounds great. So then I started you know, doing the research and looking at the costs associated with an airplane and the insurance and annuals and upkeep and, you know, just how it all worked out. I came up with a spreadsheet and I showed my wife and she laughed and that was the end of that. And so I kind of just put it on the back burner. Like that's not realistic. I don't have the time or the money to invest right now. And my wife, while I was down on a bear hunt or a deer hunt on Kodiak, my wife passed away. Um, we've been married 18 years and she passed away while I was gone. So my life really took a 180 degree change. Um, that's not something that you go through without coming out different than when you went in. Um, so I refer to myself now as Jake 2.0, um, because your perspective on, you know, literally everything is very grounded 
um, and you have a real sense of what am I doing today and why am I doing today? And so I re- ended up getting remarried, but your perspective is still there. And I started looking at the flying thing again. And cause it's just, it's just been there for so long and hanging kind of just that little carrot out there. Like, man, you should go do this, Jake. Um, and my new wife was like, well, why don't you go sit front seat in a super cub and take Uh-oh. a ride? Uh Oh <laughs> yeah. 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 I know. And I said, yeah, why don't I? So on a 26 below zero day, I went over to Palmer and I sat front seat in the cub and I flew it and I landed it and I flew it and I landed it. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Why haven't I gone broke sooner? And <laughs> like this, this is, this is where it's at. And so I, I started pursuing some flight training and I was like, I'm not very smart with numbers. So I didn't think it would work. And I took my written test and I barely passed. I was like, good enough. And I started taking the flight training and my instructors were very encouraging. Um, and said, I'm not as stupid as the last client or the last student. So that was encouraging. <laughs> and so I just kept moving forward and, and I got my license and I didn't want a super cub cause I couldn't afford a super cub. So I was looking for, time builders, you know, some little 90 horse that I could kick around in for a couple gallons an hour and do my thing and build my hours. And a deal came up on a cub that I couldn't say no to. And we got our hands on it and holy smokes. I mean, when the tires clear the ground, I still have that same feeling of, man, I got to do this from the front seat. Like I am in the front seat. Uh, let's do it again. Uh, so, I mean, we'll go out and just take off and land and bounce down gravel bars. And now that we're on skis, I mean, we go flying and do 30 or 40 landings in a couple hours just because that, that moment and that feeling is just so gratifying and so enjoyable. And the perspective on everything changes, as you know, and um, it, it just opens up so much emotionally in me based off what I went through to get to that point, the the things that have changed in my life that uh, have changed my family and my perspective and your appreciation for the blessings that you have are really, really obvious and really evident. You know, you walk away from your plane and you, you look over your shoulder and it's just like, wow, I have a super cub. And we just did that. Um, like I I usually don't even take pictures out the window anymore because nobody understands unless they're there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll take one just to show somebody, but you're just like so many things. You're like, Whoa, Whoa. And you're the only person that sees what's happening out of whatever 7 billion people in the world. You're the only one in that moment. And to me, that's special. Yeah, I uh I agree 100%. It's uh very near and dear to my heart. I uh I love airplanes and that was always my dream. I was thinking I should I should have been born in the 50s and looking at outdoor life and reading reading magazines and watching like the big rocks, long props stuff on YouTube and just looking at these dreaming. I saw I saw a video one time of a guy picking up moose sheds with a super cub and just stacking up green nasty sheds 
on the wing struts and in the back seat. And I said, man, one day that would be like the ultimate. And now that's called Tuesday after work for me. And, uh, it's, it's still mind blown and it's going to be, well, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday after work for you. Um, if you're not guiding and, uh, yeah. It just opens up so much opportunity and yeah, now you've experienced the skis, it's like, man, I'm really not limited with skis. As long as I'm not getting stuck or I got someone who can shovel really good, we can go anywhere, you know. Really makes it nice. How uh how was the uh it was pretty stressful for us, but how was the buying an airplane part? I went through I had my heart set on probably a dozen different cubs that I was in love with. I'm like, this is it. This is the one. We're going to get a pre-buy. Um, tried to line up financing because we didn't have all the money up front and just got heartbroken time and time again. And finally, I just posted an ad looking for an airplane. And I was doing some training down in Boise, and some guy called me up out of Willow. He's like, hey, I got a cub. I built a few. Haven't built a ton. It's got a pumped up uh, 0320 narrow deck and... It's on 35s. It's got a belly pod. And I was like, yeah, great. And then he's like 90,000. I'm just like, man. And it's so hard to fathom. You're getting steel tubing wrapped in bed sheets with a tiny little four cylinder engine up front. And you're like, that's worth 100 grand. And I had to really unstress about or de stress about that because I was like, I can't pay 100 grand for something like that. But I had to realize I'm not paying for that. I'm paying for what that thing can do. And I know I'm not super good, but over time I'll be able to get that thing into places where only super cubs are made for. And that's why, that's why I wanted one. Yeah. Well, for us, because I wasn't cub shopping, um, it wasn't really that big of a deal. We, we looked at a few, uh, a few different planes, a few different J3s some J5s and PA 11. Um, you know, things like that. I wanted the cub style just because I knew that would be the transition eventually to a cub. Um, so we looked at a few and man, it, you know, you just didn't get that vibe. Like this, man, this just isn't it. Um, and then the cub that we ended up with, a guy had it posted on Craigslist before for a super cheap price and no propeller on in the picture. So I thought it was a project plane. So I didn't even send him a note. Cause I'm like, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not fixing a plane. Um, and then a couple months later, he had it back on Craigslist again, but this time with the prop on it, same price. And I sent him a note and I said, what's wrong with this airplane? And all he basically said was it doesn't have a pilot. I was like, well, I know a guy that has a license. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like, uh, does that make me a pilot? And so I made him an offer and, and he accepted it. Um, and it was low enough that uh, we were able to pull savings and stuff together and pay for it. And that afternoon, four other people tried to buy it from him. Wow. Um, <laughs> so it was like, but we, I told him, I said, you know, I want it. We live in Wasilla. We're four hours away. Are you willing to hold it until I look at it? And I can be down there, whatever, in two days. And he said, that's fine. And my wife and I drove up and we saw it sitting there through the fence, like picking up a puppy at a kennel right there through the <laughs> fence. And we were like, that's it. That's our, that's our bird. We'll get two of them. And we walked up. To, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we walked up there and it was, I mean, it was almost an emotional kind of a feeling like this, this is our plane. 
Um, and you know, we'd kind of been praying about it and stuff like, Hey Lord, you know, if, if this is what we're supposed to do, then we, we want to know, we don't want confusion. We don't want to second guess. We, we want to know if this is the door we're supposed to walk through. And, and we knew, I mean, we stood there and looked at each other and like, this, this is it. Um, so it really wasn't super stressful. I mean, uh, the, the stressful aspect for me was we bought it in Soldatna and then flew it up. So the first time I re- my wife had ever flown with me, I was a 41 hour pilot and we hopped in our own super cub and shot up to 8,000 feet and flew over the forelands um, to fly home up the west side of Cook Inlet there. And I mean, that was more stressful than anything else. I'm like, man, this woman trusts me like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> like, hey, let's just let's just shoot up in a plane we know nothing about and fly over the ocean for a little while. That sounds cool. Oh, okay. Um, so that was more stressful than actually purchasing the airplane was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, mine likes to go, and yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you got one. It's a it's a life changing experience. Um, now, for you, can you? If you don't want to, it's fine, but can you kind of talk about your goals? I mean, is your goal eventually to, I know you do all your own guiding, but is it eventually to get guides under you and also guide, but kind of run your own your own airplane um, so you can charter your own flights and move people and drop food and pick up sheep and stuff like that where you need to? Or what's your what's your end goal way down the road? Uh, yes. So, that, yeah, I... <laughs> end goals having seen my life change with a text when my wife passed away you don't really make goals anymore um because you realize that you don't know what tomorrow is i i kind of just move forward with an idea of a direction and kind of just see how it plays out right now I'm working on my commercial license. I hope to have that by spring. And then I'll fly my own clients. So I'll do my own guiding and my own flying. Um, since I'm not doing sheep, I don't got to worry about leaving an airplane somewhere. Um, the plane will be there at the tent basically the whole time. That will give me opportunities for getting in, getting out, my own scheduling, not having to worry about other guys not being available. Um, it will actually be cheaper. I'm running MoGas, so that saves me some money there, too. Um, but for now, I'll just fly for my business. Um, as I get more hours and stuff into it, you know, maybe I'll look at possibly doing like a limited part 135 with the 50-mile radius limitation, um, doing flight seeing stuff so I can sleep at home at night. As far as expanding the business, you know, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it much. Um, you spend a lot of time building a business that's basically you putting somebody else in the position that you were in almost feels awkward just to think about. Um, so I don't, I don't really know what I would do with that, but for now, I mean, as long as the prop keeps turning and the wings stay on, we'll just keep building hours and see where it all ends up. Yeah. I think that's, Probably the best plan. Uh, quick question on the 135. Is that limitation for uh, no instrument rating at 50 miles from base? Is that what Yeah, that no is? instrument. Yeah, with no instrument, um, then your 50-mile radius and no night flying. But I don't know a lot of guys that do uh, flight scene stuff at night. So yeah, it kind of like a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, maybe on the floor. You know, and anything over 
anything over 50 miles in a cub for flight scene, you know, then you're starting to rack in the hours. So, but I think there'd be a lot of people that would like to hop in the plane with the quote unquote balloon tires, you know, and bounce off a ridge here or there and stuff. And just give me something to do to, to pay for the plane and put some hours on it. Yeah. Um, I've thought about, so we have 10 to one pistons in ours cause it's an experimental and, um, I have to run avgas in it. And I, I tell people and they're like, oh, they always, they're always asking about mods, you know, and what's the best mod. And I'm a huge advocate. I don't, and we've talked about this a lot. Don't mod the plane out. Like we, you just got the board prop. That's, that's one you need. You know, if you're doing short off airport stuff, you, that's one of that and bush wheels are kind of like the two you really need. But other than those, once you kind of have the basics, people are always asking, what about this? And what about flaps and slats and this starter and all kinds of stuff? I tell people, just fly the airplane, take all the money and buy all the gas you can. I truly think you're on the right track. Just fly the airplane and learn it, and you're going to do really well. Well, I've been in this, the guiding industry, I mean, there's some pilots out there that have done things and are still doing things that are just remarkable with 150 horse stock super cubs. Um, and they, they know their plane, they know their ground, they know their weather. They just know what that plane will do and they fly it inside the parameters of what it's designed for. And I think a lot of people now are like, this plane was designed for this, but I saw a video dot 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 (laughs) yeah and there it goes you know they're like i saw a guy do this once and dot 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 and then you have slats and you know and then it's like well now i but they're they're not really flying the airplane in the parameters it's built for they're changing the parameters of what the airplane will do and then changing their flying um so I have a plane and it has parameters and I'm learning what those are and I have no desire to change anything of it. You know, there's a few things like you mentioned your prop and wheels and stuff like that, that are beneficial, not so much from the point of what I would say, modding it out to get it to do more stuff, but they increase your safety margin for what you are operating in. Yep. And you know, if your plane will be safer with, something on it then by all means stick it on there i mean ultimately staying alive and being an old pilot is the goal so i don't really look at mods like i would like to fly this way i look at things on my plane like the bore prop and my 31s as this is going to help me in this situation if that comes up and give me this much more room for me to screw up and the plane to still be okay yeah, exactly. And that's that's what I tell people about 35s. They ask me all the time, are 35s worth it? And I fly a lot of different work cubs, uh, top cubs for work, and they all have bungees and 31s. And you can do a lot with a 31-inch bush wheel, especially when you start messing around with tire pressure and stuff. And I just tell 35s, I said they're a lot of extra weight, and I don't really do much stuff, but there's probably 5 to 10% of the stuff that I do where I land, and I'm like, oh, that looks fine, and then you didn't see a giant hole or a big rock or some kind of ditch, and you or I've hit some really swampy stuff where, I mean, the 35s just crawl out of holes or go into big, deep mud holes, and you wonder if a 31 would prevail like it did. So I just tell people it's a safety margin for me, and it's kind of an easy button. When I'm, I'm landing somewhere in the tundra and it's really hard to read, and I just fly over, and I'm like, you know, there's no two-foot deep holes. I'm just going to pick this line, line up with that bush over there, and 
it's probably going to work out. And that's, that's what <laughs> I tell probably going to work out. Well, yeah, it's always a maybe, you know, you never know for sure. And, uh, I just tell people like, it's, it's a safety margin thing for me. It's not about looking cool. It's a huge weight penalty. I'd love to have the weight of the 31s, but yeah, they, it's a safety margin. So I think you're on the right track for sure. Well, I think with the 150, like I have too, I think the weight and, uh, you know, the drag that would come with going to 35s, you know, I think, you know, more horsepower, you'd get more effectiveness out of the 35s than I would. Um, so, you know, me changing the 35s, I think would almost be counterproductive in, in most situations. Yeah, but I know you're all about looking cool. If you got a set of 35s and a Creedmoor strapped to the wing strut, you would be right in there with the cool kids. Well, as long as that Creedmoor comes with a Cougar decal, we'll be all set. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, so as far as the airplane and stuff like that, you get the commercial license. Um, I understand what you're saying about guys. Everyone watches YouTube and then goes out and wrecks their super fancy airplane and causes our insurance to go up. Unfortunately, um, that's the that's a demise to a lot of people and wrecking and stuff like that. Then you have to get commercial insurance, or what's your requirements then as a guide to start flying folks? So my requirements for my insurance as a guide, I mean, as my guide business is, you know, I carry, I carry liability on the guide business itself. Um, and then on the airplane, I'll have hull coverage and liability, you know, on the back seat. But to commercial insure it for guiding, it will, it'll double my insurance. I think for the hull coverage I have, I think it'll be over 10 grand a year just for my insurance for the airplane. Wow. What's it now with just you flying it? Uh, I only have it insured. I think it's 67 for hull coverage and I think I'm at 4,300. Yeah. That's, it'll go down as you get more time and everything. We're probably closer to six grand. Experimental is usually about double from what I've seen. So you probably don't MBS in that regard for double the insurance. Cost. Well, if I go to a hundred thousand in coverage, I just got a quote last week, a hundred thousand hull coverage, um, will cost me 6,100. Well, cool. Um, well, yeah, we're we're coming up on running out of time. Do you want to tell people uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Should they call you? Should they look at their website? Um, and what do you got for this year if we haven't? We get asked all the time, short-term people, like, hey, who's the best outfitter to, for this? Do you have any openings this fall, this spring um, for the short term you can talk about? Uh, this year, everything is booked up right now for this year, um, so I don't have any any openings left. Uh, for 2021, the best way to get a hold of me, all the information is on my website. Uh, it's blackriverhunting.com. My cell number's on there. Um, text is best. I got six kids, so sometimes I can't just pick up the phone and answer a phone call. Um, but if guys shoot me a note, I get back to them. If I can't call them right back, I'll just send them a text say, hey, I got your message. I'll get in touch with you. Um, so they understand what's going on. I might be knocking out some 6.5 hand loads too, so all I'm day. pretty busy doing that. <laughs> yep well cool man um i hope you guys come down here and we can actually meet you face to face and maybe set up a hunt that would be fun to to have two cubs we don't we don't get to fly with anyone so it's really cool when other people come down and it's like going to daycare and there's other kids around like oh look another super cub you know and so we'd love to have you guys down and come stay and fly around or do some hunting yeah we'd absolutely love to i've never i've never flown with anybody else so um, you know, I'd love to pop my cherry with you guys. That would be super cool. And the wife and I have talked about coming out and 
Um, you know, Western Alaska, we haven't ventured on the other side of the Alaska range yet because, like I say, we need a daycare for our kids. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we would, I mean, we would absolutely be jacked up to come over there and meet you guys and do some hunting or something. That'd be super cool. Let's put our six kids together with your six kids and then we leave. <laughs> and then it'll be We just need, <laughs> a, we need to find a nanny. Seriously, we've talked about it. Can we just get a nanny like May through October 1st and just, yeah, who can, who can do that? That'd be, that'd be nice. Yeah, exactly. Well, cool, man. We'll let you go. Um, thanks for coming on. And if people need to get a hold of you, they have your stuff. And we'll plug it into the show notes um, so people can research that and give you a text. Yeah, and if anybody wants, like, if they have questions or if there's stuff you guys don't know, I mean, if people don't have to book with me, you know, if they're looking at some other outfitter and they just want to bounce it off of somebody who knows, you know, I'm more than happy to, to help out with any of that. That's it for today, everyone. Thanks for joining us. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and also reach out to us with any questions. Until next time. Over the years, I've been pretty grateful to be on as many hunts as I have. I used to have to keep up with three tall, very fast brothers in the mountains, and I usually failed miserably and always fell behind, hit walls, and crashed hard before the hunt was over. I had to learn how to overcome my own struggles to stay in shape and be able to do these hunts without restraints and keep up with the boys. I have now discovered the ultimate hunting preparation recipe to getting in shape and staying in shape for your hunts to live the life you want without barriers. Your body's kind of like a rifle, and my job is to help you find the right load recipe for what you need to become ultimately unstoppable. The time is now to start preparing for your hunts.